So I'm really excited today uh, for you guys to hear from a really uh, good friend of mine, um, somebody, another voice who is a mentor in my life. Um, so Karen G is an elder here at the church, uh, but she is also uh, a student at Fuller Theological Seminary um, and working through the ordination process. Um, and she is here uh, to tell you her story and to tell you some good news about who Jesus is. Uh, we're going through this series called The Stewardship of Our Salvation. We're trying to learn from each other, we're trying to hear the voices within our church, voices whose lives have been transformed by God and who are using their voice uh, to tell other people that good news. So Karen uh, is just awesome. I'm excited for you guys to hear from her. Karen, she was so sweet this week that she even grammar checked a couple essays that I had to write while she's preparing for a sermon. Uh, so Karen is multi-talented and we are grateful to be able to hear from you today. So come on up, Karen, let's welcome her. Give her a round of applause. Thanks. It's great to be with you this morning. I, my Sunday school class meets at this time, so I don't usually get to come to this service. But uh, I'm really glad to be here with you this morning. The title of my sermon is a quotation from Ephesians 1.18. It's, it's called Opening the Eyes of Our Hearts. Um, so one of the big ways that our lives are different from our ancestors' lives is that we have medical care that actually works. So in my family, we've seen surgeries for hernias, sinuses, knee replacements, clogged arteries, gallbladder removal, and childbirth. And everybody in this room probably takes medication at least occasionally. Some of us take it because we have a problem. Others of us take it because we don't want to have a problem. It was not at all like that in Jesus's time. It wasn't even like that 100 years ago. 100 years ago, you could die of an infected toe. And that actually happened to President Calvin Coolidge's son. But even with all these remedies that we have, the surgeries, the meds, the supplements, we still suffer with things that can't be cured by human means. And the Bible is full of stories of people who were cured by supernatural means. Sometimes we tend to read that and think, oh, well, that's the Bible and that doesn't happen anymore. So I'm here to talk with you a little bit about that assumption, I guess, today. But let's start with one of Jesus' greatest miracles. And it's great because he heals a man who was born blind. So we don't know why this guy was blind. You know, it could have been an infection. It could have been something in his brain that didn't work or something in his eyeballs that didn't work. But he was born blind, so his eyes had never, ever worked. And Jesus opened his eyes, not just in a physical sense. Oh, um, let me pray for us before we start. Lord, you made us, body, soul, spirit, and strength. You made us to enjoy your gifts, to glorify you, and to make you visible to the people around us who may not know you yet or who may not know you well. Give me words for your people today and give each person here a glimpse of who you are. In the name of our great physician, Jesus Christ, amen. So um, in the scripture today, the disciples are gonna ask a question about a particular man's problem. And it's great that they did because it helps all of us who are sick. 
So please open your Bible, whether it's a pew Bible or your Bible on your phone, um, whatever form or translation you've got. Um, I'm going to be reading from the RSV, but you know there's nothing special about the RSV. Whatever Bible translation you like and will read is the best one. My Bible calls this a man born blind receives sight. All right. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from his birth. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be made manifest in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night comes when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Uh, But wait a minute, I'm lost here. Night comes when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. As he said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the man's eyes with the clay, saying to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam which means sent. So the man went and washed and he came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but it is like him. And he said, I am the man. They said to him, well then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he now? And he said, I don't know. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in this part of John, Jesus has been having trouble with Pharisees. Now that's pretty much situation normal because that always happens um, in the gospels. This was early fall. It was just after the festival of booths and it was a Sabbath evening. The festival of booths was one of three times in the year that all Jewish men were supposed to go to the temple. And it was a week long celebration of the Exodus and how faithful God had been to the people in the wilderness. Jerusalem was packed. Men, women, and children had been camping out in these homemade tents for a week. The smell of blood and the smoke from the sacrifices that had gone on 24-7 during that week filled the air. It was the final day, and people were saying goodbyes, packing up, and getting ready to head home. So Jesus left the temple at the end of chapter 8. He went through the city gate and he saw a Jerusalem regular, the man born blind. That's all the world saw, his condition, born blind. Their eyes were closed to his character, his aspirations, his difficulties, his future. We don't know how old he was. It says he was a man But his parents say in verse 21, he was of age. So that meant 13. He could have been as old as 20 or 30. Um, When we read verse 9-1, it says, Jesus saw a man. And we kind of think Jesus glanced over at the man, but that's not what it means. 
I looked up this word um, with some Greek scholars, and they say that it means that Jesus observed the man or looked deeply at the man. Jesus didn't just see his condition and his label, congenital blindness. Jesus' eyes were wide open to the truth about this man, not just his lifelong suffering and his present suffering, but who he would become. And he was going to become Jesus' disciple. This was going to be the most important day of this man's life. The disciples do not see him. They see his condition. They don't even think about him compassionately. And we don't hear mutterings like, is Jesus going to heal him? Do you think he's the next one? There's nothing like that. Their eyes are really closed to who he is. Instead, they have this kind of random and abstract theological question. They ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, if you think about that just a minute, it seems a little weird that they would think that this man might have sinned prenatally. Okay, but evidently some rabbis at this time were teaching that you could sin in the womb. So um, that seems kind of strange to us. The teaching or the thought that maybe his parents sinned, that's not really off base. We know that the Old Testament says that people can suffer down to the fourth generation. So the, you can suffer for what your great-grandparents did. And we do see a good example of a child dying for his parents' sin in David and Bathsheba's first child. And um, he dies in 2 Samuel 12. So Jesus says, no, sorry, both those answers are wrong. And the question seems really random, but it's good that they asked it because we have those kinds of thoughts and questions too. So it's, it's good that we hear Jesus's answer. He tells them the reason the man was blind is so that God's work could be made manifest. And manifest is kind of an old-fashioned RSV word that your Bible might say instead, shown, visible, displayed, made obvious, seen, revealed. So in other words, this blind man who could not see Jesus was going to show Jesus to the world. And he continues to do that to this day. Now, I need to stop calling him the blind man here because he receives his sight. So he gets a new identity. He's now a sighted man. And if we read through this whole chapter, we would see how meeting Jesus changes him. He gets really courageous in his defense and explanation of who Jesus is. He gets so courageous that he's sarcastic with the Pharisees and they throw him out of the synagogue. But he doesn't really care because he has met Jesus. Let's uh, skip down to verse 35. Jesus meets him again and he asks, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who speaks to you. He said, Lord, I believe and he worshiped him. We can imagine that the gift of natural sight is gonna change a lot of things in this man's life. 
For the first time, he's gonna be able to defend himself if somebody attacks him. For the first time, he's gonna be able to get a job and work. Um, he's gonna be able to do things that were never ever possible for him before. But the greatest gift he's received in this chapter is the gift of faith. So I was also healed, not from blindness. And my miracles were not quite as great as the blind man's because my body had worked in the past. But for me and my family and my friends, it really was a miracle. Like the sighted man, I learned to live with my eyes open. Oh, I'd been raised in church like a lot of you and I believed in God, but I hadn't really been changed by God yet. Um, my spiritual awakening started when I was about 30. Um, at that time, I'd been married to seven years, for seven years, and I had a one-year-old son named Sam. I had started reading my Bible daily, and I had started the habit of gratitude. So I had started basically thanking God for everything that happened in my day. Then when Sam was about three and I was 32, Jeff and I tried to have another baby, and we discovered that we had infertility. We had a really hard time getting pregnant, and when we did, I couldn't carry a baby past the first trimester. And I had my first asthma attack about that time too, and it turned into a chronic condition. I took allergy and asthma meds every day, and my goal every day was stay out of the hospital. I would get a cold and it would quickly turn into an exacerbation of my asthma and then into bronchitis. And I may as well just clear my calendar for the next three weeks or a month because I wasn't going anywhere. My other asthma trigger besides upper respiratory problems was peanuts. Um, I'd had allergies my whole life. My parents told me when I was about two or three years old and I ate fish or um, ketchup that I would get contact dermatitis every place that the fish and ketchup touched. Um, then in my teens and 20s, I developed upper respiratory allergies along with hives, welts, and vasculitis. And I got vasculitis, you can get it from a lot of things. I got it from 46 bug bites um, on my ankle. And it was the most painful condition I ever had until I had a baby. But my most dangerous problem was that in my mid-20s, I developed an allergy to peanuts. I even reacted to peanut oil. My pulmonologist asked me to keep an asthma diary, so when do you have an asthma attack? And I realized I had an asthma attack every time I was around peanuts. And I said to him, isn't this psychosomatic? Because I know I'm allergic. And he said, no, I was reacting to the inhaled peanut protein and I had to do everything I could to stay away from anybody eating peanuts. I remember my eight-year-old Sam um, telling his friends that they couldn't bring Reese's peanut butter cups into our house. They had to leave them outside. Oh, he and Jeff really protected me and an eight-year-old shouldn't have to do that for his mom, but he did. Um, so I had allergies, asthma, infertility for a decade. I was sick all the time. And I was really sick at heart. Every bird, squirrel, woman could have a baby but me. Stopped going to baby showers. 
If I saw a pregnant woman in the grocery store, I did a 180 because I did not want to see how radiant and happy she looked when I felt so miserable. I wondered why we couldn't get pregnant. Maybe God just didn't trust us with another baby. Um, Maybe he was saving us from something terrible that would happen if we had another baby. Mostly, I was just sad for those babies that I had lost. What I learned was that I could not go down further than God could go. Wherever I went, however far down I went, he was already there. I later identified with these verses in Psalm 139. If I make my bed in Sheol, and that means the grave, or in in my case, misery, thou art there. If I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there thy right hand shall lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. God met me in that dark place. I saw myself as an infertile woman, as an asthmatic, but God looked at me and saw a disciple. He used my sorrow as his door. He began to show me in big and little ways that I could rely on him. And that became one of my practical definitions of faith, knowing that we can rely on God. Jeff and I got to a point that we weren't heartbroken every day anymore. Um, Infertility was just a fact about us. I had accepted that I was gonna be an asthmatic for the rest of my life. And life went on. We continued to go to church. We continued to serve God all during this time. Um, Since I started thinking about this sermon and telling you this story, I've been wondering whether I glorified God in my illness. And um, I'm not really sure about the answer. I know there were infertility treatments that Jeff and I were not willing to do because we thought they were going too far. We really wanted to let God decide. So we did acknowledge that God was sovereign. Now that was 25 years ago. And so don't think I'm saying to anybody here that if you're considering or doing or have done infertility treatments, that I think that was wrong because it's a whole different set of choices today than it was back then. And I don't know if we would make the same decisions. If you had said to me at that time, what are you learning from this situation? I would have told you I'm learning two things. Um, First of all, having asthma taught me to rest when I'm tired. And that that sounds pretty obvious. Um, You know, in Christian terms, we call that taking a Sabbath. But I was used to pushing my body, staying up late if I needed to, getting up early if I needed to. Um, With asthma, I could not even make the bed without stopping to rest. So God taught me to listen to my body and accept that I had to rest. The second thing was really more important. God taught me that we were working off of his plan, not off of mine. And I'm a planner, so I normally have like level A, B, C, and D. And I've worked with some of you, and you probably know that about me. Um, I had no control in this. 
I could not simply decide to have a baby and do it. I couldn't even decide to take my next breath without God's help. I was utterly dependent on him. And it felt really awful um, at first. Then I discovered the more I learned about being a Christian, that complete dependence on God is the safest place for us to be and the most secure place for us to be. So God showed me that this big empty space that he had created in me with infertility and illness made a place that he could fill up with hope and even joy. When I told him how I felt with no filter in place, he came close to me. And the book of James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And I found out through experience that James is right. God could fill up that emptiness and give me joy despite my circumstances. It really was an eye-opening discovery. God gave me the miracle of faith long before he gave me the miracle of healing. Then I was 41 and surprise, I was pregnant. It was a really rough pregnancy. Um, I spent a lot of time in my Bible and crying out to God. But eventually we found out that we had a little boy and that he had 46 perfect chromosomes. And we knew that if he were born that day, I was far enough along that he would survive. I thanked God for this just astounding blessing. And I told him that I was going to be bold and ask him for a second blessing. Um, I asked that he would use my pregnancy to change my immune system and that he would take away my asthma and my allergies. And it was a pretty big ask. Oh, David was born 16 years and 10 days ago. He was a tiny preemie, he weighed four and a half pounds, but he was healthy and he was strong. Two years after his birth, my doctors had weaned me off of every single allergy and asthma medication, some of which I had been taking for 30 years. They sent me home with a new label, cured. And I've not had allergies or asthma since then. Um, I've been thinking that um, these last 16 years have been the longest period in my life that I have not had hives or dermatitis. I haven't, been, I haven't taken um, prednisone, medrol dose packs, prednisone shots, all of those things that I used to take for those problems. Um, this was nothing I deserved. It was nothing I earned. It was just God's gift. It was just God's grace. The sighted man didn't deserve it either. But God just graciously gave it to us. It's really turned me from being a sort of name on the roll Christian to being a Christian who's known the power of God. Um, having David is an enormous gift. Being healthy, not wheezing every day, not coughing every day is a great gift. But knowing God is the greatest gift. God still really does heal. I'm living proof of that. 
my son is living proof of that. He doesn't heal every person in this life, and we don't know why. Paul begged God for healing three times, but God left a lifelong thorn in his flesh. And here's what Paul said about that. He said this about his suffering and our suffering. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, some of you know that this is a time of trial for me. Um, I'm bearing with my mother who has severe dementia and is in memory care. And these verses from Romans that I just read are really my theme for this era in my life. They help me remember who God is. And they help me remember that my identity is in him. Sometimes I get really wrapped up in my trials, my anxiety about the future. And I forget that God is good and faithful and wise. That he keeps his promises. That he makes good use of the trials of this world, including our illnesses and that he's an expert at growing roses in our ashes. When I forget, the story of being healed is one of those stories that I preach to myself. And when I tell it to other people, oh, you don't, you don't have asthma anymore? You know, sometimes they're Christian, sometimes they're non-Christian. So when I tell my story, I feel the Holy Spirit nudging me. And it's like he's saying, don't just tell them what happened to you. Tell them what God did for you. This is a way that, like the blind man, I can make God visible in this very dark world. Well, let me challenge you today to make God visible at every opportunity he gives you. And I know a lot of you have stories about how you've met God because I've heard some of them. Maybe you're not comfortable yet talking to your atheist nephew or to your neighbor that you don't know very well. So you can start with baby steps. You can um, tell your story to your believing friends and family. Tell it in your Bible study. That's the way I've heard a lot of your stories because I've heard them in the Bible study I teach. Other Christians will see how faithful God has been to you. And it will really encourage them. Um, I've been encouraged by those stories you've told me. And after you've gotten up the courage to talk with other Christians, ask God to open a door for you to talk to somebody else. Walk through that door and tell your story. And if you don't have the courage to do it that day, if you chicken out, It's okay, ask God for another chance and he'll give it to you. That's happened to me many times. He'll also give you the courage to go with it. You know, we don't have to open people's eyes to Christ. That's not our job. That's a supernatural job and it belongs to the Holy Spirit. Our job is just to tell our stories, to witness and testify to the power of God. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Lord, for healing. 
and for opening our eyes to your faithfulness while we suffer. Thank you, Jesus, for suffering with us and for us. Help us to testify to your goodness. We are grateful that you make good use of the trials of this world and that you grow roses in our ashes. In Jesus' name, amen.